Amen, friends. Those of you who grew up going to Sunday school, or those of you who are currently in Sunday school, what is the first thing you might think of if you think of, someone says Jonah, someone mentions the book of Jonah? Swallowed by a fish. That's right, this giant fish. We are finally at the point where this huge fish comes along and swallows Jonah, right? That's what we see from the book, and that's what we remember the book of Jonah about. But believe it or not, the fact that Jonah is swallowed by a giant fish is not the greatest miracle in our text today. It's not the biggest deal. It's not even that hard for us necessarily to believe, although it can feel like that because we think about the fish we know and a smallmouth bass is too small to swallow Jonah and a whale, I just can't picture that happening. We don't really aren't given this information and we're not given that information because that's not the greatest miracle that's in this text today. That's not the biggest point for us to consider. So we will not actually be spending really any time talking about this fish or what it might have been. The author of Jonah tells us just this detail. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're going to spend our time in this text thinking about what happened while Jonah was in the belly of that fish. At the beginning of our text for this morning that Dan read, we have the Lord acting and the fish swallowing and Jonah going down into the belly of the fish. And then at the end of the text of what Dan read this morning, all the way in chapter 2, verse 10, you have the Lord acting again, speaking to the fish, and the fish vomiting Jonah up on the dry land. We're interested in what happened in between, what happened in those three days and three nights in the fish. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. We're going to see, as we walk through this text, three things. We're going to see a movement in this text and a purpose behind that movement. We're going to focus on verse 3, first of all, of chapter 2. The Lord brought Jonah low. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, Jonah says. We're going, to, we're going to think about that first. And Jonah going down into the deep, into the belly of the fish, and even deeper. And then we're going to look and see how the Lord brought Jonah down in order to raise him up. We're going to see in verse 6, the second half of verse 6, Jonah says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And we're going to see how God raised Jonah up. And then we're going to see why he did all this, which is kind of the capstone of the whole book of Jonah, what Jonah confesses in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, when he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to see that God brought Jonah low to raise him up so that Jonah would know that salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's walk through those things as we think about this text. First of all, the Lord brought Jonah low. This in this text, we see this kind of descent, this sinking. I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear it and read it, I feel like Jonah kind of sinking to the bottom of the sea and just coming to rest at the very bottom of the watery depths. Jonah started his descent all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, right? When he went down to Joppa to find a ship, and then he went down into the ship, and then he momentarily came up on deck but then the sailors cast him down into the water, right? We read all about that in chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, Jonah continues this descent. And the imagery that he uses to describe his going down 
is imagery of the grave. And so I, I want to read that again and listen for all these words that reflect grave or what Jonah calls Sheol. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Again, talking that grave language, I cried and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. You can picture Jonah sinking down. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Kind of hard for us to think about. We might think of seaweed, but Jonah's actually referencing there like the reeds of the, the, the underground river that was kind of pictured as the place of the dead in Jonah's days. He's saying that the, the grip of the grave is grabbing him, pulling him down. These weeds wrapped about his head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, Jonah says. He went down, 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 and hit rock bottom, as low as possible. One commentator points out this idea that God, when we picture his presence, is always at Mount Zion, at the temple, at the peak of the mountain. And Jonah here has gone down to the roots of the mountain. It's an anti-pilgrimage. Instead of going up to God in his presence, Jonah is going down, down, down to the grave and away from the presence of the Lord. As Jonah went down, he's swallowed by this giant fish, and he has time to contemplate his predicament. Why is he here? What has happened that brought Jonah down to rock bottom? We see in verse 3, it's the Lord who has brought Jonah down. Jonah says, for you, talking about the Lord, Yahweh, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. God himself has brought Jonah sinking down, down, down down. Why? Why? First of all, Jonah got what he deserved, right? If we think about chapter 1, verse 3, verse 2, God tells Jonah, go and proclaim to Nineveh judgment. And then in verse 3, Jonah goes the opposite direction and flees from the Lord. We said Jonah is a rebel who is running from God and rebels deserve destruction, right? Rebels deserve to go down into the grave. And so Jonah When God brings him down into the watery depths of the fish's belly, gets what he deserves. Jonah got what he deserved from the Lord. Not only that, though, he got what he wanted. Right? Verse 3 of chapter 1, why is Jonah running from God? He's running because he wants to escape God's presence. Right? I want to run, he says, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And here we see in chapter 2, Jonah get what he desired. In verse 4, he even says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah knows that God has cast him down into the deeps and that he is drifting away from the sight or the presence of the Lord. He's getting what he wanted. And in this poetic description, that were given from Jonah, Jonah is telling us that he is as far from Yahweh's presence as he could get, at the very roots of the mountain rather than at the peak. Jonah has gone down, down, down. What is God doing? Why is he giving Jonah what he wanted and what he deserved? We've been talking about God being a God of mercy who delights, his heart is bent towards showing mercy. Why is he here showing Jonah 
judgment. One of the reasons I think we can draw from this text is because of what Jonah wasn't doing. All the way through this story so far, we've seen Jonah refuse to call out. First, refusing to call out to the Ninevites, but later and more importantly, refusing to call out to Yahweh, right? What was he doing when the storm was raging around him? We read about this in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. The storm is raging about him. And the pagan sailors are on the deck of the ship calling out to their gods. And what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. And what's the captain come down and do? He says, arise and call out to your God. Perhaps he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. But the the author of Jonah doesn't record Jonah actually calling out to his God. He may have, but I think we're meant to see him as not calling out to his God during that time hiding really from the lots and then being discovered and then confessing what had happened but still not calling out to God. Even in verse 14, the author calls our attention to these pagan sailors now afraid of God's judgment, calling out to him for mercy. And yet we don't see Jonah praying to God until chapter 2 when Jonah is brought low, low, low by the Lord. He's driven to prayer. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Jonah says, uh, or verse 1 actually starts out with the narrator saying, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is the first time it's mentioned about Jonah praying. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, saying, I called out to the Lord. Again, that same language that the pagan captain was encouraging him to do. Call out to God. Now he is in the belly of the fish when he's been brought low. He calls out to the Lord. So God brought him low to drive him to pray. And I want us to think about what kind of prayer does he pray? That's what we're given in this. We're given a a poem that represents his prayer. What kind of prayer does he pray? If we think about it, what does this poem sound like? What does it ring? If it rings a bell in other parts of scripture to us, we might say that it reminds us of the Psalms. And if that's what it reminds you of, that's good. It ought to. Because in this prayer, as Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish, he's actually referencing over 10 different psalms. As Jonah is driven low, low, low by the Lord and driven to prayer, out of him flows praying the psalms. This shows that Jonah lived a life that was meditating day and night on the word of the Lord, like Psalm 1 tells God's people to do. Jonah was faithful to meditate on the Psalms. And so when he's, when he's squeezed by the pressures of the ocean all around him, figuratively, more than literally probably, when he's squeezed, he's squeezed like a sponge and out of him flows what's in him already, which is the Lord's word, Psalms. These Psalms flow forth as Jonah prays, but it's not just any Psalm. See, if I, if I think about what, what I would pray for in the belly of the fish, is probably for some kind of deliverance, right? Or maybe, a, maybe a, a prayer of lament, lamenting the fact that I'm here in this miserable situation. But Jonah actually prays a particular type of psalm. His, the, the style of what he does in Hebrew represents this. A psalm of thanksgiving. Which is ironic, at least to me, that Jonah is still in the belly of this fish and here he is praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving as an act of faith 
that God will deliver him. We see that in places like when he says in verse 4, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Or even when he starts out, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. He's confident of the Lord's deliverance, which, which leads him all the way to the point of saying salvation belongs to the Lord, right? But he hasn't yet been delivered. We see that it's later in verse 10 that the Lord speaks to the fish and it vomits him out onto dry land. So Jonah is crying out, to the Lord in faith. God has brought him low and has pushed him into prayer. And what flows out of him is what was in him, which is psalms of thanksgiving and psalms of faith to Yahweh. I want us to notice that Jonah didn't pray until he was pushed under the pressures of the Lord's judgment. And I want us to think about how that reflects our own habits of prayer, does it not? We often find ourselves in life circumstances when everything is fine or maybe even when we're running away in rebellion and we don't and god has been patient with us we find ourselves not driven to the lord in prayer but going our own way seeking our own things and then when the pressures of life come around whether they be trials that are brought about by no fault of our own or whether they be the consequences of our sin, like we talked about last week, when those come and we're brought low, we're often driven to prayer like Jonah. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, if God squeezed us like this, what would flow out of our hearts? What would come from us? Would it be psalms of thanksgiving to the Lord? Psalms of faith? Or would it, be, uh, would it show that we don't have really anything to wring out of our hearts? God is driving Jonah to prayer and showing what's in his heart through this. But that's not all God is doing. God is not mainly even interested in that. That's a, that's, a, that's a side note for us to consider from this text that I think is important, but that's not the main thing that God is doing here. He's driving Jonah to prayer, but he wants Jonah to recognize something particular. He's bringing Jonah low like this in order to raise him up. See, Jonah is getting what he deserved, getting what he wanted, has been prayerless the whole time. And yet God brings him low, brings him to this point of recognition of his own failures, his own need for saving. And then as he cries out to the Lord, God hears him. Verse one, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And what? And he answered me. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, he says. Think about how amazing this is for us to see that Jonah called out to the Lord out of the depths of his distress, which means in the midst of his judgment, as he was being a rebellious prophet running away from the Lord, he turned and cried out to him, and God heard him. God heard him in spite of the depths of his rebellion. Not only that, but as Jonah descended as far down as he could go to the grave, not literally because he didn't die in the fish, but figuratively, as far possible as he could go down into the depths under the roots of the mountain, Jonah cried out to God as far away from him as he could get, and God heard him. Jonah cried out to God as far away from the presence of the Lord as he could get. When God gave him what he wanted, And when he cried out, God heard him. In spite of the depths, God heard him. Not only that, friends, but in spite of Jonah's prayerlessness, God heard him. In spite of his prior prayerlessness, God heard him. 
See, God wasn't cynical about Jonah's prayer. God wasn't responding to Jonah like, yeah, of course you pray now. You're in the belly of a fish. Right? But God heard Jonah, even though he had been prayerless all the way through. And I think this ought to surprise us because I think we relate to God and think about how he might hear us differently. We don't think God hears like this. We don't think God hears out of the depths as far down as we can get. We don't think that if we've fled the Lord's presence as far as we can go, that God will hear us there. We tend to think that if I'm down in the muck and mire of my own sin and rebellion, then I've got to pull myself up onto shore a little bit and, and, and clean myself off a little bit, and then I can pray to God, and then he'll hear me. We think like that. But Jonah shows us that even as he's covered in fish guts, on his knees in the slime of the belly of the fish, God hears him when he cries out to him. And that ought to be an encouragement to us this morning that God hears no matter how far we have gone. That God hears his people when they turn to him and cry out to him. That's what Jonah wants us to see out of this text, or the author of Jonah, excuse me, wants us to see out of this text is that God hears his people. See, he had brought Jonah low for a purpose so that Jonah might cry out to him and that he might raise him up. This is the bounce. And you see, Psalms of Thanksgiving, the reason, one of the reasons we know this is a Psalm of Thanksgiving is that the form of a Psalm of Thanksgiving kind of has a section where they outline, like, here's all the plight I was in. And then it has what I, what I like to call a bounce, which is this turning point where the God, God rescued his people. And we see that here in chapter 2, verse 6. Second half of chapter 2, verse 6. After Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This, this final image of being closed into the grave. He says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the, the first time that direction has changed. That Jonah's no longer going down, but he's being raised up. And we're meant to see that as God delivering Jonah, hearing him from the depths of his rebellion. And friends, this is the most significant miracle in the book of Jonah. The most significant miracle in this text. Again, not that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, but that Jonah didn't stay there. That Jonah didn't get swallowed by this fish and then die rotting in the fish's stomach, digested as food. Jonah didn't see corruption, but he was delivered by God. Jonah lived out Psalm 1610, which says that the Lord will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is the miracle in this text that Jonah was delivered from the belly of the fish, brought up by the Lord. At the lowest point that Jonah could go, as far from God's presence as he could possibly get, he cried out to God and God heard him and God raised him up and delivered him. And didn't let his soul see corruption. Didn't let his body see corruption. God did all this for a purpose. He did all this so that Jonah might know salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah says at the end of verse 9. God did all this, bringing Jonah down into the belly of the fish. Driving him to pray and cry out. Lifting him up out of that mire. God did all this so that Jonah would know that salvation belongs to the Lord. I believe that this is the capstone verse of the book of Jonah. 
The entire book of Jonah is trying to teach us that salvation belongs to the Lord. And you might think, well, that's a pretty simple lesson. Why do we need this whole story in order to learn that? I think we need it because I think we're more like Jonah than we think. See, Jonah knew this confessionally. He knew he had good theology. He even says in chapter 4, verse 2, he quotes from Exodus and says this. He says, uh, I know that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knows that this is what God is like. He's quoting back from Exodus and from the experience where Moses saw God, saw, 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 the, saw the backside of his glory as he passed before him and declared his name. Uh, Jonah has good theology. He knew confessionally that salvation belongs to the Lord. But God wanted him to know experientially here. God wanted him to actually live it out and see for himself that salvation belongs to the Lord. One of the things that we ought to know from this experience of Jonah and from our own experience is that as God calls his people to obey him in various ministries, he's working in them just as much as he's working through them, right? God was not just sending Jonah to Nineveh because he needed someone to go to Nineveh and Jonah was sitting around and wasn't busy. He's sending Jonah to Nineveh for the sake of bringing Jonah through this experience so that he might experientially know that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's often how God works in you and I. He calls us to do something for the sake of not only accomplishing something through us, but accomplishing something in us. And God is doing that in Jonah here. That Jonah might know experientially that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah confesses this, and he experiences it, but he still doesn't understand it. He still doesn't really actually get that salvation belongs to the Lord. And I think our difficulty in understanding it ourselves is similar to Jonah's difficulty. So I want to look at two places. Look at verse 7. Look at what Jonah says. When my life was fainting away... I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. The question that we ought to ask is, in Jonah's circumstance, who remembered who? Jonah's saying, I remembered the Lord. And that might not seem real significant to you, and that's okay. Like, it is good that Jonah would remember the Lord. But all throughout Scripture, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God's people are rescued not when they remember God, but when God remembers them. All through the Old Testament, the problem is not, is not that Israel keeps forgetting God and that they ought to remember God, but that Israel can't remember God. They constantly forget God's will and ways and constantly need the Lord to remember them. This text in Jonah, we don't have time to go through it, but if you did a, did a grammatical analysis of this text and looked at the story of, uh, of, of Noah and the flood, there are many verbal parallels. What that tells us is that tells us that the author of Jonah wants us to think about the flood narrative. Noah passing through the waters of the flood, being delivered from judgment on an ark, just like Jonah's delivered in a fish, We're called to think back about that. And if we think back about that, and if we read through that story, you'll come to Genesis 8.1. And guess what it says in Genesis 8.1? That Noah remembered Yahweh? No. It says God remembered Noah and those in the ark, and God delivered them. 
In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the judgment, God remembered his people and delivered them. And Jonah is here misunderstanding what happened and thinking, I remembered God, I turned, I prayed, God delivered me. And he's looking at himself as the cause of these things. Rather than looking at God remembering him as being how he was delivered. The lesson for Jonah and the lesson for Israel that they have to take away as they're being cast into exile among the nations is that as you go into exile, the way back is not by you just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and remembering Yahweh. The way back is that as you go into exile, God will remember you. Ezekiel talks about this, uh, at that, that Ezekiel prophesies and says, as Israel, as you go out into exile, Yahweh your God will remember his steadfast covenant with you. He will remember and be faithful and call you back to himself. That God, though he is judging and bringing low, will remember you and raise you up. That's the promise that Israel ought to go into exile with. And friends, that's the lesson that you and I, one of the lessons that you and I ought to take out of this text is that we are rescued, we are delivered, not because we turn and remember God, but because God himself remembers us. God himself takes thought to us. In the depths of Sheol, God himself remembers you and remembers me. In the depths of our sin and rebellion, God remembers us and takes thought to us. And that's why we remember him. It's not because we've somehow mustered the the mental energy to keep him on the forefront of our mind, but because his spirit has moved inside of us as he remembers us and causes us to remember him. We remember God because he remembers us. That's something that we struggle to understand, and that's something Jonah struggled to understand about God's mercy. The second thing he struggled to understand We see in verses 8 to 9. Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah here is saying something that's true, right? It is bad to pay regard to idols. It is bad to worship idols. And worshiping idols is turning away from the steadfast love of God. Yes, And it is good to make sacrifices to God for God's people. It is good. It is good to pay what they vow. When they say, Lord, deliver me from this and I will do this. It is good to do that. Right? But on another another aspect, what Jonah is saying here, I think reveals a misunderstanding of how God has shown him mercy. A misunderstanding of what it means that salvation belongs to the Lord. For if we think about... When Jonah references those who pay regard to vain idols, who in the story so far has been paying regard to vain idols? It's the sailors, right? From chapter one. These Gentile sailors that are calling out to their gods are the ones that are idol worshipers. And here is Jonah in the belly of the fish praying and reflecting on God's deliverance and saying, in effect, those idol worshipers there, they, they don't know what they're doing. They've, they've abandoned faithfulness to Yahweh. And they pay, they pay regard to vain idols. They have no hope of steadfast love. But I, but guess what I will do when I get out of here? I'll make sacrifices at the temple. And I will pay what I have vowed. Meanwhile, what, what have the pagan sailors done up top in their ship? 
In verse 16, what do they do? Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The same thing Jonah says he will do after he's delivered, the pagan sailors have already done. Jonah doesn't know that, though, because he's in the belly of the fish, right? Jonah is here thinking, contemplating this question, who deserves to be rescued? And he's thinking, clearly I deserve to be rescued because I will respond to Yahweh's steadfast love and faithfulness with obedience. I'm a good Jew. I will do what I am called to do. Whereas these pagan sailors, you know, God, you can show them mercy, but they won't follow through. It's like Jonah is responding like the Pharisee to the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I am not like these pagan sailors who, though they may, they may obey me when I tell them to throw me overboard, they don't really fear you. They won't really be obedient to you. Little does he know that's not why he was rescued. I think what this reveals in Jonah's heart and, and what thinking like this reveals in our heart is this tendency we have Either on the one hand to say, yeah, we deserve to be shown mercy because we're pretty good. I think most of us are probably past that. Maybe not, but most of us I think probably are. I think the tendency more and the temptation more for good Christians like us is to be shown mercy by God and then believe that we have to live in a way that shows we deserved it right? Being shown mercy by God and then, and then acting in a way afterwards that showed that God was right to show us mercy because we're actually pretty good. This is not trying to earn the mercy by our good works, but trying to show that the mercy wasn't wasted on us because we've been pretty good. I think that's the tendency that we have. And I think that's what Jonah is doing here. He's saying, see God, you didn't waste your mercy because I'll go to your temple and I'll make sacrifices. I'll, I'll pay what I said I would. Not like those pagan sailors. Jonah is misunderstanding, again, that salvation belongs to God. Thankfully, Jonah speaks better than he knows. And he says, he confesses in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't put the pieces together, though, that chapter 1 shows that God will be merciful even to idol worshipers because salvation belongs to him. He can be merciful to whoever he wills because salvation belongs to him. Jonah doesn't get that yet. He doesn't get Romans 9. It was written a long time after Jonah, so of course he doesn't read it. But he doesn't get the concept that Paul was getting across in Romans 9, reflecting on God in the Old Testament and saying that that God can show mercy to whomever he wills. God can show compassion to whomever he desires. Paul says that in Romans 9. He's reflecting on it. It's really just the saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah is saying here, but he doesn't get that. And I think we struggle to get it as well. Praise the Lord, though. He is merciful even to those who misunderstand his mercy. God is merciful to Jonah and the fish vomits him out onto dry land. And he's given another chance, even though Jonah doesn't really understand as well as he ought, what he says when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. God is merciful even to those who misunderstand his mercy. God does all this because he's trying to teach Jonah this idea, salvation belongs to the Lord and what it means. And he's trying to do that experientially through Jonah's life and through the people around him. But God isn't just interested in Jonah knowing that, right? 
He wants his people Israel to know that as they are cast out into exile, they need to know that salvation belongs to the Lord and there is no other hope of salvation. Not only is there no other hope of salvation, but the fact that it belongs to him means he can be merciful even to rebels, which is what God's rebellious people need to know. But God is interested in more than just Jonah and Israel knowing that. He wants the whole world to know that salvation belongs to the Lord. So he does this in the life of Jonah, in preparation for the life of Jesus. Turn turn with me real quick to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. Matthew writes this. Then Jesus, uh, that's not 38. Let's find 38. There we go. Helps if I'm in the right chapter. All right. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, that is, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says the sign that will be given to the world is the sign of Jonah. That he'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Remember, I said the miracle of Jonah is not that he was swallowed by a great fish right? The miracle of Jonah was that he was swallowed by a great fish, but didn't stay there. He didn't experience corruption, but God raised him up. Well, friends, guess what? That's the miracle of Jesus too, right? The miracle of Jesus, the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about, the miracle is not that he will be swallowed by the grave, although that is quite impressive that the divine son of God could die. The miracle, though, is that while he's in the grave, he does not experience corruption. Psalm 1610 was written about him. God will not let his Holy One see corruption. And that while he is in the grave, he is raised up on the third day. This is the miracle of Jesus. Not that he was swallowed by the grave, but that he didn't stay there. See, God brought Jonah low, right? In order to raise him up. So that Jonah would know that salvation belongs to the Lord. So too with Jesus. God brought Jesus low. Jesus descended an infinitely further distance than Jonah did. Right? From the throne in heaven to earth as incarnate. And then descended, not into the belly of a fish, but into the belly of the Roman Empire. To be crucified. To experience and taste death. Jesus descended this great distance, not because he was a rebel running away from the presence of God, but because he was obedient to his father. He descended this great distance, trusting that even as he went further and further away from the presence that he enjoyed with his father since the foundation of the world, that his father would hear him and remember him. He descended all the way to the cross And then from the cross, he cried out. From the depths 
of the suffering on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just like Jonah, Jesus quotes a psalm. He cries out and then submits his spirit to death. Jonah, uh, Jesus descends into the grave and he descends into the land where the bars of the land close about him. The stone is rolled over the grave and he is there for three days and three nights. Just like Jonah though, God heard Jesus cry. God heard his cry and he didn't forsake him. He didn't forsake him, but he raised him up on the third day. Why did he do all this? Why did he do all this? God brought Jesus low in order to raise him up so that we might know that salvation belongs to the Lord, right? So that you and I could know salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. God did this to Jesus for you and I. He did this So that we might know that salvation belongs to the Lord and so that salvation might truly belong to him so that he could be merciful to idolatrous sailors who cry out to their gods in the midst of a storm. God did this so that salvation might belong to him and because salvation belongs to the Lord, God can be merciful to terrorist Ninevites as he will see in chapter 3. God did this not only that so that he could be merciful to rebellious prophets like Jonah. And do his rebellious and adulterous people like Israel. And ultimately, because salvation belongs to the Lord, God can be merciful to sinners like you and I. That's what Jonah teaches us. That's the sign of Jonah that we ought to learn. That's what it means for salvation to belong to the Lord. That God can be merciful to you and can be merciful to me when we cry out to him. And that he remembers us and hears us. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Sending your beloved son for us. So that we might see Jesus brought low. And we might see him descend even to the grave. And that we might see the sign of Jonah, Jesus, in the grave three days and three nights and not experiencing corruption. And raised up on the third day. And that we might believe and confess that salvation belongs to the Lord. You have done a mighty thing, God, that we could not even hope for on our own. So I pray that you would help us as we contemplate the sacrifice of Christ. And as, as we move into the Lord's table here in a minute. That you would help us rejoice at what you have done and help us have confidence that no matter how far we sink or no matter how rebellious we are, that we can turn and cry out to you and be heard because you remember us. Thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness that continues day by day. We praise you for your goodness. Amen.